the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Hello and welcome to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the EM Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. From key individuals to evolving trends, we seek to answer the five W's, who, what, where, when and why that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. Today, we're going to discuss Eastern Europe and Russia and how this overlooked region could be a particular beneficiary of the post-COVID normalisation. To help me approach this subject, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, William Scholes and Catriona McNair. Will and Kat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, what an honour. It's a huge pleasure. Uh, Will and Katriona are both based in London on the Emerging Market team. Will has been covering Russian companies for over a decade. His stock picks must have been pretty good, as he tells me his biggest mistake while covering Russia was forgetting his coat whilst doing a site visit of a Baltic Sea container port in bleakest February. <laughs> it was very cold. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a fairly common error. <laughs> Catriona has also been covering the region for a similar amount of time, and one of her highlights was being in Turkey in 2018 at the time of the last currency crisis when the lira collapsed. She took the opportunity to stop the team up with the local brand of Mavi jeans. Uh, These jeans sell for hundreds of dollars outside of Turkey, but sell for a fraction of that locally, which I think makes her a true value investor. (laughs) Wish we could go just now. Pity we can't travel. Probably even cheaper currently. Yeah, well, hopefully it won't be too long before we can go back and stock up on jeans. (laughs) So let's introduce today's discussion via another legendary value investor, Warren Buffett. Mr. Buffett is well known for his gold scepticism. In his 2011 annual letter to shareholders, he sketched out a thought experiment describing the world's gold stock of 170,000 tonnes as a cube with each side about 20 metres long. He described that as being similar in size to a baseball infield, which doesn't really mean much to me. So I'd visualize that as being a square made of two tennis courts side by side. At the time, back in 2011, this cube was worth about $10 trillion. He then compared that to another similarly valued group of assets, being all 400 million acres of US cropland and 16 exons. The key difference being that this latter group of assets would generate an income of nearly a trillion dollars each year, whilst the gold sat there inert and earning nothing. In his letter, he expressed doubt that any investor would ever choose the gold over the earning assets. To him, investing in gold was like the 17th century tulip bubble, where you're buying an unproductive asset in the hope that someone in the future will pay more for it. The greater fool theory of investing. Therefore, earlier this year at the peak of the market turmoil, It was surprising and somewhat unnerving, frankly, to hear that as investors were panicking and selling their financials and tourism stocks to buy gold and tech, Warren Buffett, who is typically a contrarian in crises, was also firmly amongst this herd. His stock market filings showed that he was selling his bank stocks and airlines to buy gold stocks, whilst maintaining over 40% of his investment portfolio in Amazon. And this is reflective of one of the more significant market trends over the last few years, namely the huge underperformance of value stocks versus growth stocks. Since 2012, the Emerging Market Value Index has underperformed the Emerging Market Growth Index by over 50%, leading to relative valuations of value stocks at historical lows. 
This underperformance accelerated during COVID as investors wagered that the pandemic would accelerate the shift online. However, recent positive news on vaccines led to a sharp reversal of that trend, with value outperforming again. Investors are now positioning for the future to arrive more slowly, and with that are casting their attention to the somewhat forgotten world of value stocks. And there is one particular region where value is abundant, Eastern Europe and Russia. So with that, when we look at the region, we have a fairly diverse group of countries in terms of what drives their economies and also how their politics work. How has the unfolding COVID crisis been impacting countries within the region? Perhaps, uh, Catriona, if you could go first. Thanks, Nick. Maybe we could start talking a little bit about setting the scene for the region as a whole, just to paint the picture. It's a very diverse region covering a number of markets that neighbour the Western European powerhouses, so the likes of the Czech Republic and Poland that sit very close to Germany, Turkey, which which faces onto the Middle East, and then, of course, Russia, which spans both Europe and, and right into the Far East in Asia. No corner of Eastern Europe has been untouched by COVID. Um, I think that's that's true across global markets. And what I would start with is perhaps the collapse in global tourism that we saw almost overnight where travel travel completely ground to a halt. A number of the markets that we look at have been very impacted by that. Greece in particular, where GDP, uh, 20% of GDP is derived from tourism, but also some economies where they're very reliant on hard currency flows related to tourism, particularly the likes of, of Turkey, to some extent Georgia. But Turkey was already in a fairly precarious position um, beforehand, given the lira had been under considerable pressure um, and the economy or the government had been using their limited and dwindling FX reserves to try and corrupt the currency. Considerable inflation hadn't helped, um, excess credit growth and very loose monetary policy. So the collapse in tourism really came at a, a, a painful time for Turkey, as well as a collapse in economic growth, which meant the, the economy went into something of something of a spiral. On a brighter note, uh, what we did see across the region and across emerging markets more broadly was an acceleration in digital habits, um, both for consumers and for, for corporates alike. Um, and companies trying to trying to take advantage of that and, and capitalize on that opportunity of, of increased digitalization. Um, we saw a few opportunistic IPOs come to market where companies, well-established companies um, in e-commerce or in fintech, came to the market um, and tried to, to raise capital very successfully, in some cases, um, across Poland, Russia and Kazakhstan, um, as they tried to capitalize on that acceleration and, and market hype um, around habits moving increasingly online. So that is a bright note that I would I'd perhaps leave you on. Thanks, Catriona. And perhaps, Will, you could uh, touch on Russia. Yeah, sure. Um, you'll remember that obviously the, the just before the virus hit most of Western Europe, um, the world went into an, a, a major oil price war. And I think people are a bit split on whether the oil price war came before the virus or whether the price war seemed to be well-timed, seeing as the demand for oil was about to crater anyway, um, as, as members of OPEC and, and Russia uh, wanted to regain market share from from the US. Um, and I think the, the summary for Russia is that because COVID hit mobility, um, especially aviation, it was actually far worse for Russia than, than previous kind of classically economic crises, um, you know, where kind of overexpansion ends up with uh, contraction. So, um, you know, clearly there's there's no demand creation from oil being at low prices when everyone's locked down. You're not likely to undertake a new activity just because you can get gasoline cheaply at the pump. But the thing is, it's also a crisis for which Russia has been so much better prepared than previous crises. 
So um, on the one hand, economically, you know, for, for the last year, few years since the last oil crash of 2014, Russia has been funneling um, excess oil revenues back into reserves. So they, they determine that anything over above um, $42 a barrel, uh, rather than putting that into more pro-cyclical spending. Um, they've also been trying to adjust the economy because, you know, you remember that um, as part of the sanctions by the EU and the US against Russia, um, following the war in the Crimea, Russia actually undertook its own reverse sanctions to not import goods from Europe. So they've been trying to rebalance the economy on that front, and that's actually that actually generated more domestic industry. Um, and then the other thing was that they were going into a spending boom anyway. So it was planned in, in 2018, and then the government had then underspent in 2019. So there was some there was some money to help out with the overall stimulus to deal with COVID. And then there are some kind of there are some more interesting um, anecdotes around actually the preparedness for for covid you know one of the things the world bank shows is there's the sort of communications network level of education level of hospital readiness all these things are, are big um, markers of how well economies are, are sort of set up to deal with covid and russia actually we'll talk about education a bit later but i mean the the health service um, has a significant capacity um, availability had more ventilators than almost any other Western European country, and then of course there's the there's the, the vaccine Sputnik V, whose efficacy apparently is better than Moderna's and and Pfizer's, but I think we're we're, we're yet to see that yet. So they've they've dealt with the crisis quite well. There've been wage increases, grants to families, disposable incomes up this year, and then there's mortgages which are becoming more available, and that's helping home building and that's supporting construction. So, you know, while it's been really tough because this is an ultimate in oil economy, and the government has lent more on oil and metal sectors, the, uh, the net result is actually not so bad. It's maybe sort of minus three and a half to four percent GDP this year, and you know, you look at that versus something like the UK, which is looking at minus eleven percent. Um, not to mention the kind of the different budget deficit profiles, and you think actually they've done all right. Yes, I mean, certainly the news about Russia developing a vaccine before anywhere else in the world and then deploying that was, was something quite impressive, but also interesting just to hear how prepared they were in terms of ventilators and the like, which perhaps goes against the, I guess, the general thinking of, of Russia. You know, when we think about valuation opportunities in the region, it's, it's hard not to be drawn to the commodity companies in Russia as being standout cheap, as, as they always have been, but with many historic governance issues. How have those governance issues evolved and, and what challenges do those companies now face going forward? Well, I think standout cheap is right, and certainly with in compelling dividend yields. Um, in fact, Russia now offers one of the highest dividend yields across emerging markets. That always hasn't been the case, though, of course, and from murky beginnings and, and shady dealings in the post-Soviet Russia that wouldn't be out of place in, in a spy novel, um, the country's vast resource giants have come an awfully long way. Um, so in the past, between private oligarch owners and the Russian state, minorities were offered uh, limited transparency, little if any access to key decision makers and not much if any regard for ESG concerns or, or certainly not that we'd be led to believe. And worries that we had and I'm sure a number of other investors had about national service or repeated overspending on capital projects were rarely assuaged by interactions with Russian commodity companies in the early days. But there has been a marked shift and certainly to some of the points Will was making earlier on um, in terms of corporate governance and openness to investors, we've seen a significant improvement in recent years, at least on the face of it. And corporate governance standards have also come an awfully long way. So 2018, we saw Russian oil and gas sector markedly improve their high shareholder payouts. Um, and in some cases, linking those dividend payouts to free cash flow. 
which was taken very positively by the market and by us, certainly, um, introducing an element of, of CapEx discipline that hadn't been there before. And the rising importance of ESG has also been taken well amongst existing and, and potential investors, coupled with greater state pressure in many ways, um, whether that's overt or, or a little bit more um, underhand, but certainly state pressure for Russian companies to bring standards in line with, if not better, than some of those global peers. So the message to the oligarchs and the owners has been pretty clear that the days of extracting or drilling as much as is feasibly possible uh, with little regard for the environment is over. And the latest tax changes that we've seen in Russia also serve to, to outline that and disincentivize the dirtiest products or dirtiest processes, trying to better incentivize cleaner production, even at the margin, um, and pressuring those oligarchs and owners to reinvest rather than purely extract. So again, moves that have been welcomed by the market. Yeah, it's funny isn't it, that some of the companies that used to be most pillaged in the past where um, you know, there would be private contractors who would um, supply services to big state entities that would overpay for those services and then that was a way to take money out those are actually the ones that that are um, uh, you know having that that activity stopped and probably going to be distributing more to to shareholders in a more conventional mm. dividend way whereas it's actually the the private companies who will probably um, be pressured either to you pay more away in, in, in taxes or, or reinvest more um, and you see that you see that a bit in in the oil sector as well where you know the one of the, the challenges that russia faces is, is this kind of balance between suddenly being faced with peak oil so this point where global oil demand goes into decline you know and, and, and COVID has act, obviously acted as an accelerant for that um plus the melting of the permafrost which covers huge portion of russia and and where um a large you know large part of its resource base is is to be found um and that means all kinds of things for you know subsoil pipelines as well as like over overland infrastructure um but it also means the melting of the permafrost that um the northern sea routes opening up into asia they'd like to develop as much of their you know, resource endowment as they can and they need to do that because the permafrost is starting to melt um, but that brings with it opportunities because the northern sea route, so the the icy passage around around the top uh, to eastwards to to Asia, is opening up, and that dramatically lowers the the time it takes to take you know, LNG or, or other goods um, around to Asia. So they'd like to um, d develop that and create jobs at the same time. Um, uh, and and there are some opportunities that come with that. Yeah, certainly it sounds like the challenge that Russia has to rebalance their economy is almost similar to what we're seeing in the Middle East at the moment as well, with the probably even more acute challenges that those economies face. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And since we're uh, talking about valuation opportunities in, in the region, outside of the commodity sector, where else would you highlight? Well, I'd maybe start if we're, we're talking about the, the border region um, with outlining one big benefit um, that Eastern Europe is, is set to reap in coming years, and that is an immediate post-COVID boost from the EU Recovery Fund, which is an unprecedented balance of 750 billion euros that is due to be spent in coming years across the region. Um, and 10% of that is due to be dispersed in July 2021. So that's an immediate boost post-COVID that will buoy economies across the EU. Particularly for the, the markets that we look at, um, some of those peripheral European countries such as Poland, Hungary, um, Czech Republic and Greece are set to benefit to a disproportionate extent um, relative to GDP. So for Greece, for example, it's 32 billion euros, which is equivalent to 17% of their GDP. Just to, to put some numbers around that and give you a sense of scale, 
the money obviously won't come in overnight. It'll be gradual and steady. But Greece is a place that I would I would draw attention to, especially if we're talking about valuation opportunities. It's been a market that given the various crises the country's seen post-global financial crisis, and then of course its own, its very own Greek crisis, um, it's been unloved really and forgotten by many investors, um, spooked, spooked by some of that volatility. But certainly for stock pickers, I do think there are opportunities there. And in the banking sector where we've seen um, considerable efforts to try and reduce costs and recently um, a long-standing effort to clean up legacy non-performing loans and regulatory measures underway to try and simplify very complex bankruptcy laws, there are some considerable tailwinds. Um, so I'm not saying all Greek banks are alike. Uh, they certainly aren't and they are spicy, but there's a sharp potential for a re-rating there. So I would I would be quite excited about the value potential within the Greek banking sector. Yeah, I think since you mentioned the opportunities for stock pickers, I mean, if you go beyond the index and you start to look at some of the, the small markets, they're, they're, they're quite shallow, but actually um, the kind of the, 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 the frontier investor base has really dried up. And that means a lot of those stocks are trading at really knocked down valuations. I mean, look at somewhere like Slovenia and, and, and there are a couple of companies there that many people wouldn't have heard of, but but are great quality and trade at very, very low valuations. So I mentioned gold earlier as the region has more than its fair share of gold producers, which did pretty well during the market panic as the gold price rocketed. Um, now we're looking at some degree of normalization next year. What, what about gold stocks? Do you think they've had their day? Well, I think they're in a bit of a, you know, an awkward transition period because they, they, the gold price has now come off from where it was in August. It was above 2000 an ounce in August. It's now sort of below 1800. Um, you know, I think if, if you think about the way that the copper price is going, they're sending you different direct, directions because copper is signaling, you know, a kind of a commodity-led kind of industrial re-acceleration. Um, but although we've passed, you know, the, the peak fear associated with, with the virus, um, which is what drove gold beforehand, the long-term threat of inflation around you know, increased money supply, um, you know, uh, potential for indebted governments maybe to shift more to modern monetary theory and run much higher deficits. You know, I think that the people will return to gold um, before long once the sort of cyclical excitement eases. And I think it's interesting remembering that post 2008, gold didn't peak from a gold price perspective until September 2012. Um, you know, from a local perspective, looking at the stocks, there are some there are some governance issues, but but they've come a long way. I mean, it's interesting the two big benchmark weights there. MSCI rates them both um, an A from an ESG perspective. Um, you know, and our, and our preferred one has come from single B back in 2017 to, to A. So it's it's come a long way. Um, maybe the last thing I'd say on that is the is the quality of assets. So you put them on a global scale, um, and they're at three hundred to four hundred dollars an ounce in terms of cash costs, and that compares to a global average near seven hundred. And the thing is, like, you know, as production grows, the rest of the world is generally mining lower quality grades, and 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 that cost is rising as a result. Um, but they're you know the sort of new growth projects in Russia are generally around their around the kind of current portfolio averages. So that's great from trying to invest on a through cycle basis. So potentially, I suppose, if we're moving on to this next phase of the crisis as economies recover and we see a bit more inflation, then these stocks potentially could continue to do quite well. Yeah, I don't see why not. Okay, so next question. One of the most fascinating things I found about President Trump's term was his adulation of other so-called strongman leaders around the world. 
He seemed to have particularly interesting relationships with Erdogan of Turkey and, and Putin of Russia. Uh, now that we're looking uh, towards a Biden presidency, how are those relations likely to change? Well, I think we're looking at a, a very different president, that's that's for sure. Um, what exactly it'll mean for the administration and, and for both for Erdogan and for Putin, I think it's unclear at this point. The only thing that is is certain is a restoration of proper, proper diplomatic channels, given Biden's background. Um, I doubt that he will try and woo Erdogan and Putin to the same degree that we saw Trump try over his presidency. Um, what difficult is Biden trying to juggle the, the pressure, I suppose, amongst some Democrats to take a, a harsher stance with Putin versus those diplomatic channels and whether we see press there or not? Um, certainly some of the rhetoric could dampen sentiment in Russia, but his approach will try to seek diplomatic resolution on some of the more contentious issues, particularly around climate change. I think that's something we can expect more pressure on Russia from a Biden presidency or a Biden administration. But certainly I would think that sanctions risk or more confrontational tools would be used as a last resort. Turkey is a little bit more tricky. Um, I think the US has historically considered Erdogan and his his increasing autocracy um, as more European issue. Um, and that's been really heightened by the Syrian refugee crisis where Europe has um, limited tools really at their fingertips, given some of the leverage that Turkey has over, over Europe in that regard. I would expect Biden to exert more pressure on Turkey than his predecessor, um, certainly with regards to defence, given both are members of, of NATO, and that's really where the US interacts most directly with Turkey. Um, and in response to some of those flare-ups we saw in the Eastern Mediterranean earlier this year. But he's a pragmatist, um, so he'll go down again. I think we'll go down the route of global diplomacy to try and engage on some of those those complex issues facing Turkey and some of, of Turkey's regional neighbours. So looking at the future, how are the investment opportunities evolving as the importance of commodities uh, diminishes? Certainly Russia and Ukraine are famous for the quality and quantity of software developers that their universities produce. How's that been shaping things? Well, I, I mean, it's obviously something that, that Putin's concerned about. So in April, he, he did an interview with one of the news agencies, and he said that in regard to this issue of the brain drain, we can either respond like we did in the Soviet era, which is just to shut them in the country, or we can provide better grants and salaries to try and keep them and, and maybe entice them back. So there, I think, are, I think it's almost like 30,000 scientists and academics outside Russia today. Um, and, and, you know, we see that now. So there are tax breaks for software engineers, there are tax breaks for their employers. Um, and, and it's all part of a broader social infrastructure spending that Russia's going through because it needs to you know, dramatically turn around its, its population pyramid. Um, but from the perspective of, of, of innovation of smaller companies, um, it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know, and for, for us, it's providing many more investment opportunities outside the, the classic kind of oil and material sectors. Yeah, no, it, it really has been notable, the number of new companies that have been listening recently that are, that are outside of those more traditional sectors, uh, which has been uh, great and, and very interesting for us. And the younger generation who are at the vanguard of the, this shift online, how are they impacting the shape of demand and significance of some of these new economy companies? Younger shoppers across Eastern Europe have been evidencing more willingness to spend on, on quality, on services and on experiences. They've also proven to be a little bit more tech savvy um, than some of the previous shopping trends that we saw in the past. So there's been additional digitalization of, of shopping, leisure and banking habits across the region. Currently, internet, gaming, social media, e-commerce and fintech stocks now make up over 10% of the local emerging Europe index, and that compares to zero in 2010. So there's been a lot of 
new listings coming to the fore in the last 10 years. But certainly with the number of IPOs we've seen in, in recent weeks and recent months, I would expect that to, to continually or continue to rise, um, spurred on in many ways by, by the COVID crisis as companies try to raise, raise their profile and list. Well, thank you, Katrina. That really is quite a significant statistic about the uh, development of local indices with the with the increasing uh, exposure towards IT and tech companies. So that's really interesting about how we think about the future and how investment opportunities are going to develop. Um, you know, I also hope we'll be able to visit the region again in the not too distant future, particularly if that means we can stock up on cheap jeans again. That's right. So with that, the only thing left for me to do now is to thank my guests, William and Catriona. Thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. And thank everyone who took the time to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast, brought to you by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more great content, visit AberdeenStandard.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.